Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is uh, November 27, 2012. It's a Tuesday, and this is episode 1028 of the Survival Podcast. And today we're going into the mind of Jack Spierko with visionary ideas and things that we could do in the future to create businesses and industry that would aid in a transitional process away from some of the destructive practices that make our lives infinitely unsustainable uh, and move us more toward a, a true uh, sustainable uh, culture and more uh, of, of something that we can actually believe that one day our kids will still be able to utilize. And that's not turning away from technology. That's not getting rid of your SUVs. You guys know me better than that. That's just admitting that we have some things that are wrong. Uh, with our with our agricultural production, with the way that we produce food, and that something needs to be done, but it cannot be done overnight. I'll get more into that in just a moment. Before I do, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is Survival Gear Bags. Check them out at survivalgearbags.com. That's Kelly John Doe. Really great guy who's uh, who's run that site for several years now. Actually, the site was inspired by the Survival Podcast itself. He's been a supporter of the Member Support Brigade, and he's one of our newest sponsors that we've brought on board when we had a little bit of turnover. And I'm very grateful to have him as a sponsor. He does an MSB discount as well. And what are you going to find there? Well, Survival Gear Bags. What do you think you're going to find? Bags, right? Any kind of bag you can think of to do anything you want from building a bug out bag to a get home bag to a vehicle kit and more and all the really cool stuff that you need to put inside there, uh, gear, uh, books, knowledge, everything you can think of. And he does a great job of taking care of the audience. Uh, great place to do some shopping for that prepper in your life for Christmas. Check him out today, survivalgearbags.com. Next up today, JM Bullion. Um, you know, we're not really going to talk too much about the economic system today, uh, but you talk about something that's unsustainable. How about the national debt? Uh, how about the inflation curve? How about the M3 money supply? How about the global economy? How about the global banking system? You've got to have something to protect yourself from that with. And you know me, I'm not an all-in guy, but I think putting some portion of your wealth into silver and or gold is a great idea. I went out to try to find you the best small company I could. Small family run where you could talk to the owner uh, and yet very competitive pricing. And I found a company in JM Bullion that, that is just that. And not only, I mean, it's really hard to find someone that's small and can beat the big boys. But this is a guy with better pricing on silver by the ounce than Apmex and Monex, uh, two of the biggest silver houses in the country. Check them out today, JM Bullion. Next up, remember to check out TSP Copper. Uh, copper is a cool, far less expensive metal, but it may be the silver of the future for all we know. And we have some really cool copper medallions at tspcopper.com. Very affordable, great way to spread a lot of messages like the message of Ron Paul and Liberty or the Survival Podcast. And even for you beekeepers, we have a honeypot coin. We have a lot of other really cool ones, including Second Amendment, Republic of Texas, you name it. You'll probably find something there that goes along with it. And remember, the pricing is for a roll of 20 coins, not for an individual copper coin. Uh, that would be a bit exorbitant. Uh, TSP Gear Shop is up and running. Uh, check it out. We are just about to put in an order for the uh, the Sentinel patches. Those are really cool. Check out the patches. Check out the shirts. Check out everything. Uh, Kelly's doing a great job with that as well. 
And uh, last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. You support the show at about 18.3 cents an episode. And today may be the last day uh, that I leave open the lifetime membership opportunity. If you want to become a lifetime member of the Support Brigade, uh, the cost is $300. There will be a link in today's show notes. Please do not just send me an email that says put me on the list. There is no list. Um, I need certain information from you so that I can either send you an invoice in PayPal or tell you how to make payment by mail. If I don't have that information, then there's I, I really can't you know do it for you. So please use the link in today's show notes. Click on it. You'll get the information, exactly what to send me in an email so you can join. I appreciate everybody that's done this. It is going to help us fund our move. And uh, it, it's going to go a long way to do that. And But I don't want, you know, I obviously don't want everybody to do it. It's 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 foregoing the future for the present. Uh, and you can only do so much of that sustainability, right? So I'll probably close it today. I may lay, let it run tomorrow. We kind of have a target we're trying to hit, and we're really close. When we hit it, we're done. Uh, whatever day I hit it, I'll run it until midnight that day, and the next day I'll announce that it's closed. Um, it isn't something I want to do, you know, in perpetuity or anything like that. All right. Uh, also, Military Law Enforcement Peace Corps, no discount on the lifetime membership because it, it's lifetime, right? Um, but if you want to join the regular way, remember to email me before you join with service discount in the subject line, and I'll give you a special discount to thank you for your service. Okay, with that wrapped up, let's get into what we're going to talk about today. Again, I want to talk about technologies, products, and ideas for what I'm calling a transitional society. This kind of comes out of the permaculture world, the transition movement, that there's an obvious flaw with what we're doing, but you can't go from 60 to zero without killing everybody in the car. You really can't. And you don't want to go from 60 to zero. You want to go from 60 to 60, right? You just want to maintain 60 in a different way. Or maybe you have to go from 60 to 50, but maybe there, you know, even 60 to 50 is going to cost a lot of, cause a lot of problems if it happens abruptly. Right, that immediate, you know, like you think about, think about hitting, you're in a car, you're doing 60 miles an hour, somebody hits the brakes and drops it to 50 in a millisecond, you know, you can end up, you know, slammed against the window or what have you. And we have to look at society that way. And we have to understand that, okay, we look at modern agriculture, and every time I go to like any kind of earth skills gathering or a permaculture workshop, there's people of that mindset there. And we, whenever modern agriculture comes up, we just should all change it tomorrow, man. You know, there's always that guy or that gal that says it that way. You know, we got to just change it like right away. And you, what you have to do is sit down with that person, have a conversation and go, well, that would be great if you want millions of people to die. And they don't get it because they live in the idealistic world. Some, what I want to make sure that you guys understand is I'm not dealing a drug today, uh, a drug that I call hopium. Right, like opium, hopium. There's a lot of stuff out there that's like technological marvels, Star Trek, Star Wars, lightsaber crap, and and the people that get wrapped up in the fact that it. Or we're just going to go back to Little House on the Prairie and it'll all be swell and fine, and we can support eight billion people on the planet that way. Any of that stuff is hopium. I'm not dealing that today. And some of these people have hopium. We'll just change every farm in the Midwest to like what Joe Saladin does, and it'll all be great. Well. We can get close to that, right? We can get, but you can't do it tomorrow. We have fields that have been managed a certain way for 50 years. And transitioning those fields takes a lot more work, honestly, than going out and just finding something that's been abandoned and left alone for 50 years. Because there's been damage and depletion to that soil, but yet it is still able to produce corn and soy and wheat and all the crap that they produce with it. So we have to have a way 
to get from where we're at to where we're going, but to do so in a gradient as we as we shift. And not all of that stuff's going to go away. There's always going to be a market for wheat and soy and corn and things and rye and barley and things like that. So people will always grow it. But do we need to rely on it to the level that we do today? And we do we need to do the damaging practices to feed the people of the planet? And the answer to both of those questions is no. But we do need to do it right now. Because you can't just, the entire distribution system, the entire industry is built around a model for doing things the way that they are. If you just tried to, if you said tomorrow, no more GMOs, right? And I want GMOs gone, but just no more. Man, we got a problem because we got fields where nothing else is going to grow now until we fix it. We can fix it. It can be repaired. But we're talking a multi-year phasic process to, to re, re, you know, reclaim these things, you know, 50, 60,000 acres at a time. And it can't be done in one chunk. It's got to be incrementally done and weaned off into other things. So these are some ideas of how it can be done at a smaller level but can be scaled up to a bigger level today. But before I can go into the ideas, I have to talk about kind of what the hang-ups and the problems are and the, the backwards approach that most people in this sector take. And what I mean by that is people will come on and like one of the first things we're going to talk about today is acorns. Every time I read a permaculture magazine, there's some article in there about how we can transfer from grains to tree crops by using plants like acorns and how sustainable and how long an oak tree lasts and how much acorns drop and on and on and on. We'll get to the actual specifics there, but the reality is this. We do not have an acorn shortage in the United States or many parts of the world today. Even the highest quality white acorn is in abundance today. Huge surpluses. No one needs to plant an oak tree to have acorns, but there's no market. There's no acorn market. We'll talk about one of the first technologies. We're talking about how to create that. But the first thing we have to understand is, well, how do you create a market in the first place? How are markets created? Because you, the, the transition movement has to move society into new markets. Right now, people expect the following. I buy a house. I pay a bunch of, uh, of deposits. And all of these things called utilities get turned on. I pay a monthly bill, and it's all taken care of. This is 99.9% .9 of people in the developed world are of that mindset, even the ones on government assistance living in the projects. Just somebody else pays the bill or they pay a far reduced bill. This is the expectation. Now, if you want to move to somewhere where the expectation changes, you have to give people a reason to go there. Markets are created when people put out products and services that improve quality of life and meet demands. So what do people want? So we have to create a market, and that means we have to get creative. That doesn't mean if you go plant 100 acres of permaculture, plant a whole crap load of oak trees, and 25 years later when they're into full mast, and you can literally go out and drive a truck out underneath your trees and just start shoveling with a coal shovel, and, and, and just metric tons of acorns, that you're going to have anything you can do with them. So why aren't people... Farming and managing for acorns, there's no market. There's some limited niche markets, right? They're finishing hogs on them and all, but not really. So what incentive is there for a farmer, even if he's only making 3,000 an acre doing corn, but he has 10,000 acres and it's all automated and he has farmhands that do all the work, 
to go and take his cornfield and turn it into an oak grove and do so in a way where he's not going to really get the yield from the oaks for 25 years. Now, those of you that understand permaculture are going, well, it's not just oaks. There would be all this intermittent stuff, and then there's timber, and then there's sustainable this, and we can plant that, and there's this multi-faceted system with all these different levels of production, and some things are coming into high production in the first year, and then they're waning off, and that's all true. But there's no market for the overstory acorn. Where's that market? Where's that market that everybody writes about? So we have to create the market. And to do that, we need to understand a couple things about human nature. And one of the biggest things we have to understand it is basic human nature for people to be lazy. As long as something, something will happen to meet a need and they don't have to move to make it happen, they'll choose the path of least resistance. And in our modern society, that's more true than it could ever be in something like a hunter-gatherer society. I got kids that got to go to baseball games and ballet classes and school, and I got a job, and my wife has a job, and, and I got to cut the grass. And I, I mean, there's this, this, this lifestyle that we lead. There's no time for anybody to sit down and peel an acorn. Get the shell off and get the covering off, and you might know where I'm going with the acorn thing here in a bit. But there's, it, it's not going to happen, right? And then they're not going to go and buy something that they don't, they're not familiar with that costs more unless they see a value add in there somewhere. Why am I doing, why am I paying 24, because the only place I could find that could buy acorn flour online, it was over $20 a pound. Why am I paying $20 a pound for something that I could use white flour for less than, you know, a dollar a pound from the store for. Why am I doing this? It's healthy? Really? Does it taste good? And this is the other thing that, that holds up markets. People naturally resist change. So to create a market, we have to bring value add, reduce the labor requirement of the target audience to almost nothing, at least the ultimate end user to almost nothing, And we have to give them a reason to change that they'll accept. There's one more hurdle. We're not going to talk much about it today because it's time for us to just start working our way around it. And that's government regulation, especially when it comes to food. There is nothing holding up sustainable agriculture or sustainable food production, distributed food networks, and distributed energy networks more than government regulation. So it's time, I'm saying it's time for people to just start picking up and doing it and let them try to shut you down and get 400,000 people on the internet behind you and run over their ass and start realizing that we're the ones in control, they're the ones pulling the puppet strings, we can cut them anytime we want. And sometimes it's hard to cut a string and sometimes it's easy and you ain't going to know until you have to cut it, so get out and make things happen. But th this, this mentality has to be understood for all of these great ideas to flourish A market must be created in which to sell the production to, no matter what it is. That must be done in a way that requires as little effort as possible and hopefully as little sacrifice as possible to the end user in a way that tells them that it's worth making a change. There's It's health, it's sustainability, it's taking care of it. Whatever does it for them. You can have the same product, sell it to 10,000 customers, And group them into 10 groups of a thousand that all say they have a different reason for being willing to make the change, pay a premium, whatever it is. So it is a marketer 
You have your own ideas, and I, I struggle with this too, with everything I've ever marketed, as to why I see value in what I'm offering to people. But if my audience stands up and says, you know, the thing that I really like about this product is X, then that becomes a bullet point. I don't care if I think that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I never built it to do that. That's not my intention. If some segment of my paying customers say, I'm buying it because of XYZ, XYZ becomes a bullet point. It becomes a benefit, and it becomes a marketed benefit. And one of the biggest things that holds markets back is the person has this idea, I'm going to save the polar bear, or I'm going to do whatever, and they don't want to sell on a value proposition because they're not here to do that. They're here to save the world or save the whales or save the Orioles or whatever it is. Well, you got to do that in a value proposition way because the mass market Doesn't really give a shit about your little pet thing. They don't give a shit about mine either. That's your, that might be your nucleus, your, 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 your test bed to prove out the concept. But when it comes to actually making it a, a market, you have to go there. And I know this sounds like a marketing lesson, a five minutes with Jack episode, but without that understanding, none of this other stuff, you won't go, well, why haven't somebody done that yet? Because they're going about it backwards. So let's start out with the acorn. I'll tell you the biggest thing holding the acorn back. There's no mechanized method that I can find anyway, and nobody's doing it anywhere, and you can't buy one, and you can't buy from somebody that has one, uh, even the end product, where you can dump acorns in the top in their natural state, the way they fall off the tree, and turn a lever, push a button, do something, and a bunch of stuff turns and winds, and, meow, and then out the other end comes an acorn that has the shell removed that... Uh, The, 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 the kind of the skin that's over the nut removed and you have raw nut meal that can then somehow be processed quickly to remove whatever remaining tannins are there out of it. That's, that's the biggest holdup. That's the product. Okay. The market is making a market for acorn flour though. You know, how do you make acorn flour marketable? And that's where we have to get into something called value-added services. So we know one of the hangups is we need a method that we can dump a bucket of acorns in And turn a crank, hook up a horse, put on a motor, hook up a solar panel. I don't care what you do, but out the other end, he's come acorn meal. And we need to come up with a way to detanninize that acorn uh, and, and what to do with the tanninized water where it won't be harmful. Because too much tannin in one place is never good, no matter what the source is. All right, so we can, and that can all be done. That's all technological hurdle. There's somebody out there right now with a background in machines and, 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 and machine systems and maybe agricultural uh, things like combines and all that can think about that right now and go, well, hell, I can do that. And even if there's a significant amount of waste to remove the skin, so if it goes through some kind of forced thing that like ends up taking one, one eighth or something of the, of the nut meat away and doesn't just get it, it doesn't matter because there's so much of it there and it's so productive. We just need a way that you can quickly take a product that rots on the forest floor every day, right? 90% of it is not eaten by squirrels or wild boars or deer. It sits there and rots and turn it into a productive food source. But then we need a market. We need a market for it. Now, if you've ever eaten acorn bread made from 100% acorn meal, it tastes like crap. You can try to tell me it doesn't. You can try to tell me that, no, you don't understand, and the earth has a flower in the center of the universe. Or what. I don't care. It tastes like garbage. But if you've ever made bread from about half flour and half acorn meal, especially if you add anything else to it, it's actually really good. 
So it doesn't have to be an all or nothing. If we can reduce the amount of wheat flour and replace a component of it, then we can begin to transition those fields that no longer need to produce wheat into something more sustainable and productive. And we can start to balance that. But we need a market. And then here's some other thoughts, right? This kind of leads into some other things. I think there's a huge market out there for somebody to develop small-scale, affordable haulers and presses and things like that. Here's what I mean. Go try to squeeze sorghum. You need one of those old sorghum presses and horses or electrical, gas, right? But if you could build something, even with a hand roller system or an electric roller system that could squeeze two canes a minute, 120 canes an hour, the backyard production of sorghum syrup becomes something that could be a little cottage industry for somebody. I don't know of a product like that that exists. And we're going to go back to acorns here in a second. You'll see how it ties in. Uh, Another thing that I can never find affordably is something that would haul buckwheat. Buckwheat haulers seem to be almost exclusively made in Japan and China. They're thousands and thousands of dollars in the design for industrial level production of buckwheat meal. Which means that problem doesn't exist the way that acorns do. Because people that want to grow buckwheat commercially have that technology available. And buckwheat flour, buckwheat groats, both are very affordable, very inexpensive. Okay, um, But I do think that there would be a much bigger market for home growers of buckwheat uh, if there was some way that they could process it without you know the price of, of the machine being such that they could buy a decent used car. I think that's too high a price to be able to produce your own buckwheat at home. And that holds up a lot of little cottage industries because that would be an interesting product to be able to market. And we're going to get to another marketing phrase here in a second that will tie this all together uh, when we do. But another product that, you know, there is commercial equipment to do it, but I haven't found any inexpensive equipment uh, to process, is millet. Uh, Millet's a great grain. And unlike amaranth and quinoa, it does need to be processed to get rid of the holes. Now, we have buckwheat holes and, and millet holes. We have compostable organic matter, and there's other things that they're both valuable for as far as fillers and, and, and things like that. And cleaning, uh, they're actually very good for cleaning a lot of metals and other things uh, because of their abrasive nature. So we've got a sustainable product that could actually be used to do things like polish brass and not become an environmental threat and then be composted and go through a full cycle. But now we could do something a little bit more creative. There's a lot of places you can grow buckwheat. You can't grow wheat. There's a lot of places where you kind of need to grow buckwheat as a cover crop, but you end up then tilling it in. But they do harvest it, and then they put the green matter back down, and they till it in. Well, now if we get somebody that's creative that comes up with the source of the acorn meal, and they can make a flour that's one-third buckwheat, one-third whole wheat, and one-third acorn. You've got a really tasty, nutrient-rich flour that's far more marketable than acorn, but you've got to build the system to be able to do that. This can then be taken to a small scale if somebody can build the equipment down to an affordable level for the small producer, the person with a few acres that's, that's doing this type of thing. Um, and they can source their diff- the parts they can't produce. So if the guy can grow a lot of buckwheat, but he can't grow a lot of acorn, if there's a market for acorn meal that's affordable and reasonable, they can be put together. And what we're starting to describe here, when we build this, so the end product isn't an acorn. 
It's a flour composed of multiple grains and that acorn is a component of. Now it's something that every artsy-fartsy, yuppie asshole wants in their cupboard. See how that works? And what we're doing is something called value-added services. Now, th that's a fancy term that uses mo is used mostly in like corporate consulting or something like that. So as a salesman, I could go into a client and sell them a bunch of hardware and some other things, and then value-added services would be, well, our, our installers can come in and put it in for you. We can have a maintenance contract. We can extend your warranty. We can do training with your people. Right. So and most of it's fluff and puff that the customer doesn't really need in the corporate world. It's corporate bullshit. Um, some of it's legitimate, but a lot of it's crap. But why does it even work? Well, because people are naturally lazy and people are naturally concerned with change. So if you're going to sell me new hardware to put in, in and you're also going to warranty it, you're going to train my people on it, and if anything goes wrong, I'm going to have a maintenance contract with you where you have to come in and fix it at no additional cost to me then I'll, I'm likely to consider buying that. As the, as the seller, if I know my equipment's going to work, you don't really need to know how to use it. It never breaks, and I'm not afraid to change because I know what it is. I'm just selling you fluff and puff and thin air. But if you'll give me more money to give me the base money, I'll take it. That's how it works in the corporate world. Well, in society as a whole, in the mass market, people don't want to buy a bucket of acorns. The person looks at the bucket of acorns and they say, screw off. I, if I wanted a bucket of acorns, I can walk my ass down to the city park, hand my kid a dollar and a bucket, and they'll happily fill it with all the acorns I could ever want. And they don't do it. And they don't like, why? Because they don't want to do all the work. So to make something like acorns, and chestnuts is another one, into a carbohydrate crop to replace some portion of the unsustainably grown grain, then we have to develop a market and a value-added services distribution system into which to sell it. And the reality is that market can be developed completely independent of planting a single oak tree because there's already a surplus. There's, all, there's somebody listening to me right now has got 50 acres. It's mostly oaks. When they walk through their, 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 their land in the fall, they, they feel like they're walking on marbles especially in a year where the whites, which are the more optimum product, do well with the mass drop. So the, the, the acorns are there. So the, the, it's the cart before the horse type of thing. So every time I read one of these magazines, that's, what, that's my thought. It's not, it's not, gee, that would be great. if every, It's like we have, freaking, we have that everywhere right now. You've got to develop the market. And that's, I think, where it starts. A mechanized way to rapidly process acorn, raw acorn into clean meal. And I think that with all the other amazing technologies that we've built, that's something that maybe somebody with a background in machinery and agriculture and a maker workshop near them can figure out how to do. Even If you can build a little one, you know, that, that, that does a pound every 10 minutes, it can be scaled up. So there's idea number one, along with things like affordable holders and presses for products that people, you know, want to process but can't and can't afford the equipment to do it with. Less expensive but sufficient to do the job. Easy to manufacture, easy to distribute. Um, another one, and this is something I've been kicking around in my head ever since I had Stephen Harris on the first time and asked him about making biogas. So here's the basic process to make biogas. I get two plastic drums and um, 
I, I put one inside the other with water to create a seal. And within that, there is a whole bunch of organic matter like fruit and manure and rotten apples and anything I can get my hands on that will break down. And I put it in there. I'm not going to go deep into how you do this, but I, I put it in a situation where it's going to break down anaerobically in absence of oxygen. And I create a system that will contain the off gas, which is mostly methane. And then I run a tube from that to something like a gas grill or a stove. And now I have free gas. And the only thing I need is a couple barrels, some tubing, some rocks to put on the one barrel over the other to put some weight and pressure on it. If the pressure's too low, I throw another brick up on it, and I've got this free methane. Why doesn't everybody do it? Because not everybody wants to go to five or six different grocery stores and get you know the, the, the right to all the rotted, disgusting food haul it home and do this and try to maintain that relationship when you only need a little bit of, of it to do that. You don't need the scale that they really want to unload this crap for. So the problem isn't that the technology doesn't work. The problem isn't that the technology isn't safe. The problem isn't that the technology isn't desired. The problem is that the end user doesn't want to do the work. And they don't even understand that. It, most people don't even understand this. If you start talking about making biogas to people, they... But what if, right now, you could pick up your local Yellow Pages or go to yellowpages.com or yp.com, whatever it is, and type in biogas service. And you'd find a listing of people in your area that do this for a living. And a contractor would come out to your site and say where's your stove, or do you want to bring in an outside kitchen stove, where's your grill, how much gas do you think you'll be using, where do you have a space to keep the equipment at, and say, here's what we'll do. For X dollars, we'll set your system up, and for Y dollars, we'll come back around and refill it, and we'll set up two tanks so that when you're done with one, you just hook up to the other, you call us, we start the other one cooking. We take away all the sludge, all the waste, all you do is get gas, and here's the price for it. Okay? Interesting, isn't it? Now, what happens when you go back to that customer to empty out the barrel? What's in there? The most high-quality fertilizer you can get your hands on. So now you take the fertilizer and you sell it to a different customer, or you might even sell it back to the customer that you're doing the work for, because the person that buys this is going to be the kind of person that has a garden. Because that has to be taken away and drained out and whatever, and you end up with basically a solid and a liquid fertilizer. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? So the business produces a product that's even more marketable and sellable at a higher premium than the initial business. And I think if someone would come out and set that up for me, even though I know how to do it myself, I'm busy as hell. I like to support small businesses, and I'd probably make the phone call and have one set up at my new property. In fact, since I want a grill, and I'm going to move the, the, the old gas stove that's in the kitchen is really not that great, and I want to put a really nice cook stove in there as we redo the kitchen, and I'm going to probably move that out into like the garage and have that like for canning in the summer, open up all the bays and have it outside, that would be a great place to run biogas. I'll probably just go ahead and do that myself. Hell, I'll probably run a workshop and have five or six of you come out there and learn how to do it when we build it. But... If I could just make a phone call, ring, ring, done, well, I'd be happy to do that all day long. And then I become a repeat customer. All you have to do 
is whenever this one is done and you're not getting the pressure you want, shut off, shut the valve, disconnect the hose, move it over here and hook it back up and call us. We'll come recharge that thing and take away the waste for you, Mr. Customer, and you're helping the earth. And you're getting your, your gas for less than you could buy it. How cool is that? So there's a business that you don't need to develop. Now, the smart thing would be to develop a tanking system that's better and less likely to incur the wrath of government assholes than two blue barrels, one big one and one small one. But that may be good enough. I don't. Again, the biggest hang-up to this business would be the government who's here to help you and says they want environmentally friendly things to happen. But there's probably with some type of pressure bladder and some fail-safe, some way to do this, this is an inherently safe technology. It really is. Um, gas tanks don't generally explode. In fact, if they rupture, all that happens is the gas vents off. You're not talking about storing 10,000 you know, gallons of methane. You're talking about, you know, equivalent to what you would store in a five to, to you know, a, 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 what is it, a 15 gallons that goes, or is it 15 pounds, whatever it is, that goes underneath your, uh, your, your grill. Maybe twice that amount. Maybe three times at most. Nowhere near under the pressure that, that, that propane's under. So it's inherently safe. If you needed certain fittings and tubes run by a licensed plumber, you just include that in your installation cost and subcontract it out. And the more you can do to make it the same everywhere. So a person can come to your website. What's the installation process? It's like our consultant will come out and meet with you, discuss what your needs are. We'll take our tanks. We'll put them here. They'll look like this. When it's done, we'll come by. We'll pick it up. This is how we'll pump it out. We'll recharge it for you. There'll be no odor. It'll be completely safe. All of our plumbing is installed by licensed plumbers. Right? Well, what if the person wants it to run to their cook stove in their, in their kitchen, and that's going to be expensive? That's value-added services, my man. You let them pay, you give them a quote, and you let them pay for it, and you don't apologize for the price. You get your licensed plumber that gives you a contract rate for all the different types of services. You throw 20% on that shit, and you get it done. It's called a business, fool. This is how you make it happen. And this is something that can be done tomorrow. This, and I would, if I wanted to start this, I would find the place most receptive to this type of technology with the least amount of, of crap in my way as far as regulation, and I would go prove it out there. I would, if I wanted to do this, if this was going to be my business and I was going to make my legacy, I would find the best place to do it. I would move there if I had to. Because once you do it somewhere, And you've got it, then it's much easier to, to infiltrate other, other places. Because people start going, yeah, you say we can't do this, but they're doing it over in Sheboyganville. There's, there's 10,000 people over there doing this. They're paying half, and they're using all waste material that right now is being thrown into landfills. Why can't we do this too? There's all kinds of sources too. If you're willing to do things that others are not, there's always an opportunity. Do you know, I heard of the business one time that was basically this. A guy comes to your house once or twice a week and picks up all your dog shit. That sounds disgusting. I ain't going to do it. But apparently some people will, and apparently some people will pay for it. Well, you can make biogas from dog shit. You really can. And while it would be a, a really take, it's like, it's like human manure. It would take a real long time, like a year, to process the fertilizer, um, And if it was mostly that and you were doing it with a conventional pro uh, composting, but if it made up 10% of biogas production, the end, the end product's immediately usable at the end of its, if it's biogas production. 
So there's all types of sources of stuff like this. There's so much waste out there that if we were gathering all that waste and producing biogas with it, we have an immense opportunity there. Now, can we power the entire gas needs of the United States of America with this? No. But for the person that can build this into a franchise and do 1%, what's it worth? And it has an impact. And it raises awareness. And it would lead to other things. It would probably lead to development of things that make it easy for you to switch between natural gas, liquid propane, and methane. And I know, yeah, right, we're, we're kind of overlapping there, but I mean from different sources. So there's always the opportunity. There's a guy that has a natural gas line coming into his house, but he'll use the methane. And I mean, and there's only so many things that we can do with it in that biogas form, but we can certainly cook with it. We can certainly provide heat with it. So there's a tremendous opportunity with that one alone. The next world I want to go into is aquaponics. Now, this is one of the things everybody wants to do, everybody talks about, but very few people actually end up doing because the more you look at it, the more of a pain in the ass it becomes. So I have two ideas for how this can be uh, set up to be a lot easier for the end user and let all the people that want to do it be able to do it more affordably and more effectively. The first thing you want to do when you create a market is you say to yourself, is there something there to be harvested? Instead of having to create the entire market, can I find a doodad or a gizmo that attaches to something that a lot of people already have that will make it more effective for them? When I think of aquaponics, the first thing I think of is water and fish. And when I think of water and fish, uh, one of the biggest niche industries, if you want to call it that, is the backyard pond industry. There's entire companies and corporations 100% dedicated to small ponds. There's literally millions of these things all over America right now and in much of the developed world. Uh, inside these ponds are usually koi and uh, or goldfish of, of some sort. And um, you look at that and you go, well, a lot of these ponds range from 100 gallons to a couple thousand gallons, and that's a pretty significant aquaponics system. So I think that the product then is a snap-together modular product that makes your, your, your garden pond into an aquaponic system. It's not designed to say, okay, you put a pond in and then do this. It's initially that product is designed for the person that already has one. And basically, the product would work this way. If you're smart, you want to make it easy to understand, easy to price, and since the customer probably isn't going to want to do it themselves, easy to install so that you can charge a fair price for the installation, make a fair margin, and build jobs, right? Because all of this stuff creates jobs if it's done bigger than just you. And even if it's just you, that's one job. You're one less person in the general workforce, even if you're self-employed. So the thought would be this. You have a 100-gallon pond, right, or a 100 to 200-gallon pond. You need two of these grow beds. You need these things, and everything just snaps together. And you do it in a way where it can be set up and look very good, and it doesn't have to necessarily be right next to the pond. Now, you've got some things going on your behalf here. I'd say 99.9% .9 of these ponds have electric pumps in them already. That means you already have power. The person's already got the water and the power. So things can be done to like box in your grow beds or whatever, but the, the big thing would be how many gallons do you have, how far away from the pond do you want to locate the system. And then there'd be a chart. You need one of these, two of these, three of these, four of those, five of these. They all cost this. The price is X, right? You want professional installation? 
Each one of those has a little Excel spreadsheet, guys. This is how every estimate is done on the planet. An estimate of labor hours based on all of those factors is X hours. We'll install it for you for Y. So you can buy the parts for X or have it installed for Y. And you need to figure out the cheapest but most, you know, um, both, uh, most, what's the word? Durable and good looking product to do this with. I don't think that you're going to be doing a lot of this with IBCs, right? International beverage containers. I mean, a lot of people build aquaponic systems like that, but if you want the mass market, people resist change. So what isn't change for a person who already has a garden pond, right? What isn't change is really beautiful, really integrated plantings. Almost anybody that has a pond is going to have bushes and trees and all that other stuff like that. So that, I think, is... Just a market waiting to happen. So it's basically we turn your pond into a food production system. You can buy our products or our licensed installers, our, our certified installers, or however you want to market it, come and put it in for you. Because there's a lot of stuff to that. Leveling, right? A person set up to do that can come in and level stuff. And you know, and you have in your, your quote that they get, you know, uh, final price subject to, you know, uh, on-site inspection. Because you go in and the person has like a huge slope where they want to put it, and that has to be leveled out. You know, can you get equipment in there? There's always these variables. But a lot of people, you know, they think, I'm going to do aquaponics until they look at their ground, and then they go, I don't want to do all this work. Okay. Now, the, the, the offshoot of that is building cheap modular snap-together aquaponic systems. No one's doing that right. To buy a system that's going to produce any level of productivity You know, a hundred fish a year, five or six decent sized grow beds, all the materials, etc. It's, it's thousands and thousands of dollars. There has to be a way to commoditize this down to an easy to assemble, good looking, snap together, modular system that when somebody buys it, you can address this concern. I can only afford X right now. Eventually I want to do Y. And you want a system that you can say, You'll never have to buy a different model, a different product, a different pump. All you'll ever have to do is buy more. That's all you'll ever have to do. This system right now can run up to six grow beds. It'll do fine with four. Before you even need to add more water, more sump, more pump, more anything, you're only going to have, you, you can add two more grow beds. You can buy them anytime you want. They're always the same. They always fit the same. And there's products out there sort of like this, but no one's figured how to do it and make them low cost to ship. Shipping's insane. Doing it in the United States. Building the damn things in the United States. There's off-the-shelf products like couplers and pipes and things like that that no matter where they're made, you're better off using the existing distribution system. But there's got to be a way to build the tank systems for a lower cost to a dedicated product and make this thing marketable. I think this is harder than the pond-based system in a way. In a way, because you have to do deal with the water, the sump, and everything else. Where with the pond-based system, basically you need a pump and you need grow beds, right? And I mean, and, and, and materials to go in there. Now, the smart person would say, we can even have somebody come out once a week and take care of your plantings and test your water and do all that stuff as well, right? I mean, these are these are businesses that can become infinitely sustainable because the customer ends up. With a huge value add, we can sell you your, your, all the stuff to do it yourself, or we can just deliver it to you. See, that's the approach to take. 
Because what will happen is a lot of people will say, I want to do it all myself. And then, then the laziness factor kicks in, and your salesperson's having the kitchen table meeting with mom and dad and the kids, and they say, but what would it cost if you guys did this? And they look at that and they go, that's not bad. And even a number you think is high, a lot of people that buy shit like this, they're like, that, that's fine. And again, this extends the market, and it starts to create a distributed food system. So now you have food production being at a greater distributed level. Now, there's going to be people that say, I don't even want fish. Well, when your fish are ready, you know, big enough that they, they need to be replaced, we'll just come take them away for you and give you new little ones. Now you got a product, right? Now, think about if you've built this aquaponics business to where you have thousands and thousands of customers, And yeah, the aquaponic systems do a lot to remove fish waste. But if you set up a system that you can drain off the excess fish waste, now you have another fertilizer product that's a marketable product to sell. There's, there's so much to something like this. And I think that the aquaponics market is largely untapped. And most people that want to get into it think about going to a commercial level where you want to set up like a huge grow house or group of grow houses and sell produce and fish. And I think the mass market is a better play, uh, it's more resilient, and it begins to put the food in the backyard of the customer, which makes it more sustainable. Now, the person with a little bit of creativity can start marketing modules to go with this. A solar backup. A complete solar system. So the system runs 100% off solar energy. That would be a pretty big system, but what you can do is build a 50% photovoltaic system with a solar backup. So it'll run okay on solar only. You're going to plug the grid into it, but it provides 50% of its own power. By the way, that power can be used, if necessary, to do other things with around your home. In fact, we can build an entire battery bank backup system there that doesn't just back up. See, you build a market and you keep selling more into it. You've already determined that the person has you come in and build this system is concerned with sustainability and food production. They're probably, therefore, going to be concerned with renewable energy. Once you have thousands of customers, you start marketing a secondary product into it and then a tertiary product into it. And you keep going. Value-added services. And you don't sell people just to sell people. You sell them what they want. You start asking your customers, would you be interested in this? And when they say yes, you go, then we're going to develop that. Now the customer doesn't feel forced on, they feel served, and they are. See, there's a lot of you out there that I can tell when I talk about business or I run a sale and you get all snooty that you're never going to be financially successful because you think anybody that is has done something wrong. If that's you, you've got a problem. It's your problem. It's not mine. It's not the market's problem. It's your problem. All of this stuff that I'm talking about, most people that would feel snooty, like, eh, you're making money off of people, whatever, would think that the end result is great. You don't get to the end result unless there's a profit in the system. Because people aren't going to do all this work for free. They're just not. They need to provide for their family and their homes and their communities as well. This is how the free market operates. So if you, if you, if you, you like, oh, he's just harvesting these people. You're not harvesting, right? You're culturing, right? It's like horticulture versus gardening. You, you have this, this customer base that you keep developing things to meet what they're asking for, not just coming up with something new to shove down their throats. And that's how successful companies are built. Even giant ones. They respond to the demand 
instead of ignoring the demand. And that's what I'm talking about here. Um, another really great market that I think just hasn't been exploited enough is building electric motorcycles. I just read an article, and there's tons of information on this online, and there's tons of people doing it, which is great. That means the technology exists. But it was in like a backwoods or homesteading or some magazine I was at, and I should have bought it, and maybe I'll go buy it just so I can find it for you guys to see if it's online somewhere. But I was in a bookstore, and I just kind of read it and put it back on the shelf. It was a guy that built an electric motorcycle that gets the equivalent of like 313 miles to the gallon by the formula that they use from MIT or whatever. But basically, he used four, I think, of the Optima yellow top batteries. He used an old Kawasaki motorcycle frame that he got for about a hundred bucks on Craigslist because the engine was shot. Well, he didn't care about the engine. He needed the frame, the sprockets, etc. He put this whole thing together. He had less than $2,000 into it. It has a range, I think, of 30 miles and a top speed of 45 miles per hour. It could have more range with another battery. It could have greater speed with a different gearing mechanism. He bought a little controller for it wasn't very much. You plug a computer in it. You set your acceleration curve. So when he first got on it, like even when he gave it a little bit of throttle, he said it almost threw him off because of the, how quickly the torque was applied because this is a direct drive system. He put the computer on it, set it to this linear curve, and it just accelerated beautifully. So now he's got this motorcycle, 45 miles an hour, Looks like a motorcycle, runs like a motorcycle, sounds like an electric drill. Plug it in at night, and you can drive over the 30 miles a day on it. There's a lot of people out there that if you can drive 30 miles a day, even at 45 miles an hour, and he said this thing could be pushed faster, that will reduce the range, right? But that takes you to working back, especially if there's any place to plug it in at work which would mean remote charging stations for electric vehicles is a big play in the future as well. But to me, if you can build these things and sell them for five to $6,000, you can probably sell a shitload of them. And a person that can build you know, 10 of these things a month has a business. And I don't think you'd search for customers very long. What's the alternative? A forty dollars or $50,000 hybrid vehicle that's a piece of crap? Now, is everybody going to want a motorcycle? No, but is there a motorcycle market? Yes. Electric bicycles are cool, but they don't have the speed and the roadworthiness. And here's the thing. If you go the recycle map, uh, route, if your whole concept is we scour Craigslist, we find one of four or five or six specific frames that are shot, we acquire them at a low price, and we want to limit how many frames we acquire so that we can have a system that we always know, get in production mentality, that when we have this frame, this is the process, the materials, how everything goes together. Everything's you know set up with, with tools and, and, and uh, uh, what's the word? I'm, I'm having one of those moments where I can't, but it's basically where you create a pattern. And there's a word for it, like a jig, but it's not a jig. Anyway, you guys that are in the fabrication world and woodworking world, you know what I'm talking about. So everything's already ready to go, and you just follow the process and churn out another one. Um, you know, you, you, you strip the frame, you spray the frame, you, 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 know, you sandblast the frame, you spray the frame with, with paint, uh, you put the materials together, and you go. And I think there's a huge market there. I really do. There's a market for electric vehicles. And the problem is it's very expensive in return for what you get. And the biggest hang-up for electric vehicles is weight. And a motorcycle takes that away. Now, can a family of four use one? Maybe dad can, can go to work or mom can to go to work or, or what have you. But, you know, 
there's a limit to the market, but it's still a a viable market uh, nonetheless. Uh, The other thing what I was kind of getting to is if you're getting your frames like that, so these are motorcycles that are already considered street motorcycles, and they already have a VIN number, (laughs) there's no hurdle. There's no regulatory hurdle. They're just considered a modified street bike. You can get, uh, you know, tags for them. If you live in a state that still requires inspections, they can get inspected. They can get licensed. They can drive on the road. It's, 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 it's a done deal. And there's, there's, there is a way to do this in a high quality and high quantity, uh, marketplace. And there's so many busted ass, rusted up motorcycles out there, you know, uh, old frames that are just sitting around doing nothing that are complete, completely roadworthy. Uh, they're just not worth fixing the engines in. And this is a way to take that and harness yet another way to be more sustainable. Now, some people will say, well, electricity doesn't come from a jelly bean field. Guys, I'm not selling hopium. I'm really not, just like I said in the beginning. But you know what? You can produce quite a bit of energy with, with a couple hundred watts of solar. And you can do quite a bit of charging. And that motorcycle then becomes a mobile power backup system. Because as long as you can charge it, you could also use it for backup power in your home or anywhere else for that matter. Just a thought. Um, and it's all about determining the best weight to energy curve ratio for your batteries that go in there. The guy that did the, the one in the magazine used Yellow Top Optimus. And mainly, he said, because not only are they a great performer, but totally sealed and all, they can be mounted upside down, sideways, left. So he was able to fit more of them in the frame that way. But I, I think that's another uh, market. And I think another market is building battery backup systems, which we kind of already covered. But I think that it's being done, but it's being done very expensively. And there's ways to cut the cost. You'll get a lot of this in the Stephen Harris episode. Uh, but I think that it, there's a lot of people out there would like a battery backup system. They'd be happy to spend maybe a 1000 bucks uh, on one, but they don't want to do it. Well, you can build a pretty good one for about $500 in material costs, a really damn good one for about $500 in material costs. So that's a pretty good markup for not a lot of labor if you know what you're doing and you standardize. And this is the big thing with all of these, all of these ideas that I had today. The way to make these work and to make them fly is to come up with standardization of exactly which product, how long every cable is. So everything is in the mass market concept, even if being done in the niche market delivery. So that when you get a client that wants X, you have a chart and you just pick and there's a price and boom, it's done. Because that's there's another thing with creating markets. There's a customer expectation. And that expectation has to be met. And if that expectation is met and exceeded, then you get the most powerful form of marketing known to man. Word of mouth marketing. Hey, this guy came over. He set up this bank of batteries. It just sits there like that. If I ever need new batteries, I can call him and he'll come replace them. Or he'll tell me what to buy and I can do it myself. It's up to me. But when the lights go out, we have power. Plain and simple, we have power. And whenever we get ready to do um, uh, solar, the batteries are already there. Uh, Again, car before the horse. You've got to build that market. I don't know that the battery backup system market is, is, is exciting, but it may be a hell of a lot easier to sell people on. You know, what do you need? I need access here and I need a place to put it and this is, and what do I do? You don't do anything. We do it all for you. 
I think there's a huge market there. Um, a lot of people are afraid of electricity with good reason, with really good reason. Um, and you don't have to even do like a grid tied battery backup system. The system comes, it's installed, we give you X amount of extension cords and things, we show you exactly how to store it, how to keep it, how to utilize it when it's necessary. You got a generator, great, we show you how to use the generator to charge the system so that you can run the generator during the day and turn the damn noisy thing off at night and only run it when you need it. There's, there's huge, huge potential because of the primary things we started out with. We, there's markets that have yet to be created, which spells opportunity and something called first mover advantage. There is a, the standard human nature of laziness and change resistance. The person that understands those things can turn what seems like a detriment into an asset because the resistance to change keeps your competition at bay until you're established. Ah, nobody's going to do that. And you know when everybody will do it? When you have a successful business. I've seen it. I've seen it in every business I've ever been in that we've created a market in, including this one. How many survival homestead-style podcasts existed in 2008? I'll tell you how many. None until I started mine. And I'm not being egocentric here. I'm just telling you the truth. There were none because I started it because I couldn't find one. I found a couple things people had done, you know, about like water storage, and then they did one more on like food storage, and those were six months apart, and then there was no more podcasts for that person. Even a couple of them were okay. You know, a couple on gardening that was like, you know, a rebroadcast of an AM radio show, and there was nothing. Go type in homesteading podcasts, survival podcasts, preparedness podcasts. There's entire networks built today with you know 10 15 people contributing content to them but there wasn't one in 2008 and part of what's made the survival podcast successful is dedication work quality all of those things but it was also the fact that I did it first that I created the market that there are people that listen to this show that didn't come from the backwoods home homesteading forum or uh, you know or some other site or some other forum that they really didn't have any attachment to these types of things at all until one day something happened somewhere and they were curious and they did a search on iTunes or a search on Google they found the show they liked it they listened to it they realized this isn't what I thought it was going to be this is cool they got and, and then that that customer base that I've built this show with is something that didn't exist. Until I built it. And then all of a sudden other people come. And you know what? That's great. And the biggest thing that gets in the way of success for most business people is when people start to emulate them, they worry about it. They give a shit. They get upset. Hey, this guy's copy. So what? Do your thing. Do your thing. And do it the best that you can. Because you've created a market. And that means there is an infinite, infinite opportunity in the market that you're in. And the sustainable technologies, the, the, the craft technologies, uh, the niche markets, all of these things that can lead us to more sustainability, a better tomorrow, have to be built that way. And the biggest hang-up, again, is people that have success and worry about the people coming. The bigger hang-up, though, in this realm is people that are so concerned with saving the earth that they're not able to be successful at anything because they're so worried about, well, we have to have this agenda that makes the polar bear comfortable or what you got to get off that you got to say okay this product's good and it's good environmentally it's good permaculturally it's good whatever it's that that's we know that now how do we make it fit how do we make it cost effective how do we make it work 
How do we sell it for what it is versus selling it as freaking hopium? Because hopium don't sell. Hopium sells in how many people read your blog and give you a thumbs up and tell you, God, that's great, but it doesn't sell in the market. So, I mean, I can't give you a better example of this than all of these eco-stove companies. And I've got the EcoZoom, and there's some other ones and all. And they have all these great stoves. And the best ones they have, like, they'll cook with two of them and have a griddle on them or bigger versions that produce more power for the, the bio-light electric stoves and all that. You know what? They're not available in North America. We're, we're, we're sending them to Africa. We're sending them to India. We're sending them to places where people need them and they don't have this stuff and it's going to make their lives better. Here's a clue for you guys. How about selling them to the 300 million Americans with this stuff called disposable income that will buy them and give you a profit with which to further your mission to reach these outlying areas? Because you've got people here going, if you'll sell me that, I'll buy one tomorrow morning. I'll buy it tomorrow, but no. So for these types of technologies, they have to be married with reality. And I think there's a bunch of them. I'd like to hear your ideas today. And those of you who are like, I have an idea, but I don't want to tell anybody because they'll do it first. Bullshit. You know what? I get so tired of it. I'll tell you, but you have to promise not to tell anybody. Oh, God, for God's sakes. I get a hundred ideas a day pitched at me. A hundred ideas a day. Nothing I've given you today is a new idea. Maybe a new way to piece it together. Maybe a little bit of incentive. If somebody out there takes every single one of these ideas and builds a successful business and it never profits me a penny, I will be a happy man. That's the way you develop these things is you bring the insight and you let them go. Maybe I'll be part of the development of something like one of these one day. I don't know. But for, frankly, I have enough to do with what I have to do for myself. There's an opportunity, though, folks, and I want to hear your thoughts on these and other ideas that could be built. And you guys that are thinking, boy, I could do this part but not that part, get together on the forum, get together on the blog, develop these things. Somebody has oak trees and someone has a machinist background. Work together, man. Uh, there's plenty of opportunity out there to, to build new technologies to take us forward. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another episode of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. In our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better Show you a better way. You don't have to be another face in the crowd. You don't have to live the way they tell you to. Make your own way, others will follow. Someday we'll realize our children just can't pay. Cause nobody up there cares, they're living for.